I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me today to the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. verses 7 through 9. I'll begin with uh, verse 1 just as the introduction to that uh, chapter and then read verses 7 through 9. The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, even the prophecy, the man spake unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Uchol. Two things have I required of thee, deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, and take the name of my God in vain. The disciples of Christ asked the Lord Jesus to teach them how to pray, you'll recall in Luke 11.1. Even though they had been raised in Jewish families and the men attended, the women attended Jewish synagogues where prayers were continually and constantly offered up to God, they wanted some form or some pattern of prayer that would guide them as they approached the one true living God in prayer. And the Lord gave to his disciples, you recall, a pattern to follow, which we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Dear ones, prayer is lifting up our hearts to the triune God through our only mediator, Jesus Christ. In praise of who he is, in thankfulness for all that he has done for us and all that we have received from him, in confession of our sin and seeking pardon for our sin and in request from him of various lawful needs and desires, all which is done to the glory of God. There are many different prayers found in the scripture to which we could look to help us to guide, be guided in how we ought to offer our prayers to the Lord our God. The prayer that we find here in Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, is one upon which I would submit to you we would do well to meditate and to reflect upon and to do so often. For it addresses our greatest temptations and sins in this world that we must be ever vigilant and alert that we be not overcome by them. Let us consider together this Lord's Day the following main points from our text in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. First of all, uh, the fervency of faith and prayer in Proverbs 30, verse 7. Second, the request made in prayer, Proverbs 30, verse 8. And thirdly, the reasons for the requests made in prayer. Proverbs 30, verse 9. Our first main point then, the fervency of faith in prayer. Look with me again at verse 7. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. This prayer is attributed to one Agur, who is mentioned only here in Proverbs 30, verse 1. Nowhere else in the scripture is this individual mentioned. 
Some of the Jewish rabbis and early church fathers thought that this agur was a figurative reference to Solomon. Others have understood this individual to have been a real historical prophet whose inspired words were included along with those of Solomon at this particular point in the book of Proverbs. The second explanation I would submit would seem more likely to be the case inasmuch as Agur is also called the son of Jacob. If we understand Agur to be Solomon, then Jacob must be David, Solomon's father. And I would submit this is not very likely to have been the case. For unless we do have some very good reason for departing from the natural understanding of a passage, we should adhere to it lest we become carried away with various fanciful interpretations uh, that the Spirit of God never intended. We see the fervency of faith in Agur's prayer, for according to the English text, he requires, or literally from the Hebrew, asks, and prays that God will not withhold two requests from him. Now, this is not a prayer wherein Agur demands that God serve him as if he, Agur, were the master and God were his celestial genie performing two wishes for him. Such blasphemy, dear ones, may be heard on the radio or on the TV by false ministers who act as though they could put God into some box and require him to act according to their own self-centered whims. Dear ones, that is not faith, but rather presumption. That is not humility, but rather pride. Such prayers are not uttered for the glory of God, but rather for the selfish desires of men. And dear ones, God hates all such prayers. And even if God should give in that kind of an instance where someone selfishly demands something from God, that which is given at that particular point in time, I would submit to you, is even if it is what they demanded, will not be a blessing to them, but will be given even as a judgment. In Numbers 11.4, Israel demanded that God give them meat to eat, for they were sick of the manna that had been given to them. God gave them exactly what they wanted. But along with the quail, God sent a plague that consumed them even as they chewed the quail with their teeth. Thus, dear ones, let us never demand from God what we want as if he simply existed to serve us, lest he give us what we want in his wrath and in his anger. Now, in our desire to avoid all such presumptuous demands, let us not go to the other extreme, wherein we fear even asking God to meet our needs and to fulfill all our lawful desires in his good time. Agur confidently brings his two requests to the Lord because he knows they are according to God's revealed will. You recall in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, that we are encouraged here to pray according to the will of God. And if we do so, the Lord hears us and gives us that which we ask. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we desired of him. Verse 14 says, and I should have read that first, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. <clears throat> For our Heavenly Father, dear ones, delights 
delight in the prayers of his children. Our Heavenly Father doesn't grow weary of us coming to him and petitioning him, crying out to him. In fact, he invites us to do so. He doesn't throw roadblocks before us. He says unto us, come to the throne of grace through Christ. Your mediator. The way has been made open for you to come. Let nothing hinder you from coming. But come through Christ. Because there is no other access to the Father but through Christ. He wants us to come to him, dear ones, to praise him, to thank him, and yes, to bring our lawful Request him. Not because God must be informed of our needs as if he were ignorant of what our needs are, but because he delights, dear ones, he delights to meet our needs through his own appointed means of grace, which is prayer, so as to encourage our faith, so as to strengthen our faith by that ordinance. By that means of grace, of prayer. We find, for example, dear ones, the invitation and how much more heartfelt this invitation could be, I don't know. But in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, we read, If ye... Then being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? We read, dear ones, in Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Again, we read in James chapter 4, verse 2. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Dear ones, we must never be afraid to approach our Heavenly Father through Christ, our mediator. He is our righteousness. He has paid the price for us that we might approach with confidence and boldness our Heavenly Father. We must not be afraid to approach him with requests even befitting, befitting an omnipotent God and sovereign king. We must not treat him as if he were like us, as if he were just a common, ordinary human being or even a human king. He is almighty God and our requests and our petitions should reflect that and what we bring unto him. If God delights, dear ones, to take Gideon's 300 and defeat 135,000 Midianites, are you afraid to pray that God will remove all sins and errors that divide Christians? Or that he will destroy all false religion? Are you afraid to pray that he will grant us a multitude of faithful ministers and elders and deacons? Are you afraid... To ask that he will grant to us children who are faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. Are you afraid to beseech him that he will overcome the greatest besetting sins in your life or mine? Are you afraid to petition him that he will give us sufficient funds as families? That we will not only be able to provide for ourselves, but we'll be, have enough to be able to care for the needs of others who are lacking among us and to move forward the kingdom of God. 
We are even authorized, dear ones, by Christ to be steadfast and constant in our lawful request that we make known unto him. The Lord Jesus says in a parable, he speaks to this effect, a parable. And he spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint, not to give up, not to be cast down in despair, but to continue to beseech the Lord God Almighty, omnipotent, with our humble prayers and petitions. In fact, in Isaiah 62, 7, it says we're not to give him any rest. We're to give him no rest. We are even, dear ones, to persevere, therefore, in all our lawful requests to God. Let us, dear ones, never forget the persevering faith and prayer of the Canaanite woman whose daughter was afflicted with an unclean spirit and who would not be shaken by the Lord's silence or even by the Lord's words to her. The Lord was silent when she brought this petition and said, Lord, my daughter is ill. She is possessed with a a devil. And the Lord said nothing to her. I'm just... (laughs) Again, summarizing uh, what the Lord did in this situation in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. At that point, the disciples even said to her, get away from us. You're simply bothering us. You're a nuisance to us. You know, what discouragement. The Lord, at that particular point, says, I've only come to minister to the household of Israel. You're, You're a Gentile, Syrian. That didn't discourage her. She continued to plead. The Lord said, the food is prepared for the children at the table. In other words, you're not of Israel. You're not one of the children by national calling. She said, even the little dogs, Lord, can scoop up the crumbs that fall from the table of the children. She wouldn't give up. She continued. She did not allow these seeming hindrances to discourage her from continuing to come to Christ. And the Lord said, Great is thy faith. Great is thy faith. And did grant to her her request. And did cast out the demon from her daughter. Is that what the Lord is waiting for in our lives? To see that kind of perseverance? Faith and prayer? This is the fervent faith of Agur that is manifested in his request that the Lord not withhold from him what he asks. There's one more aspect of Agur's faith which is manifested in this prayer. He prays with a view to his own death. He says, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Prayer unto God that remembers and accounts that our days are numbered. That our years are like a dream in the night or like a vapor of mist that is here today and is gone tomorrow. This is a prayer that will be fervent in faith. For it looks away from perishable man. It looks rather to the one true living God who is from everlasting to everlasting who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It looks to God to be the source of life, the source of everything that is needed in this life, and recognizes his own perishable nature, his own inadequacy even to extend his day one, his life one day, if it merely depends upon him. 
by way of my own personal testimony, and perhaps you can identify with this. When I was much younger, I used to think of myself as being nearly invincible. That life would just continue to go on and on and on and on. So often when we're young, we think there's our goals, we're going to make it. We're going to reach those goals. Uh, nothing wrong with planning and making goals, but just the way of thinking, not including in all of that the possibility of death. The older I grow, however, the more I realize that reflection upon my own death is not some morbid exercise, but a rather a glorious means of sanctification in my life. To see my own and understand my own mortality, that I could be standing in the presence of God the next moment, the next hour, the next day. It gives me a sense of urgency in prayer and directs me to that which is truly important, which is glorifying God and serving Jesus Christ with all of my heart. Dear ones, how fervent would our prayers be if we knew we had only one day left upon this earth? Would we find time to spend in prayer if we knew we only had 24 hours to live? Death is an appointment for which none of us will be late. It is an, uh, an appointment that none of us can miss. Our certain appointment with death should, dear ones, ever make us humble and fervent before the Lord our God in prayer. For there are no second chances after death. Like Agur, may our certain appointment with death give to us a sobriety and fervency in the prayers which we offer unto the Lord. Our second main point, the request made in prayer. Look with me at Proverbs 30, verse 8. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. The first request that we find in Agur's prayer is a request for sufficient grace to overcome sin. Sufficient grace to overcome sin. When he says, remove far from me vanity and lies. Agur prays quite literally Pluck out, tear out, or remove far from me vanity and lies. For dear ones, the sins in our lives, whatever they may be, the sins in our lives cannot be dealt with as if they were guests that we had invited for tea. They must be treated as hostile enemies who have invaded our mind, our desires, and our will. And they will destroy us if they are not violently removed far from us, plucked out, cut out. If we have, dear ones, developed a comfortable attitude toward our sins, like the Israelites who did not drive out all of the Canaanites, from the land of promise, as they were told to do by the Lord, our sins, like those Canaanites, will gradually and eventually overwhelm us and overcome us. Is that not why we find such violent language used in Scripture when speaking of our duty toward our own sins? We are told, dear ones, to crucify 
our sins. To nail them to the cross with Jesus Christ. We are told to mortify them. Make them dead through the sacrifice of Christ, through the power of Christ, to pluck them out as if we were plucking out one of our own eyes, or to cut them off as if we were cutting off one of our hands or one of our feet. For sin, dear ones, will not be satisfied with occupying a little space in the closet in our home and in our house and in our lives. It will not be satisfied until it does occupy the whole house. Until it destroys every room in that house and everyone in that house. Do you view sin, dear ones, in your life as being such an enemy? Until you view sin as such a destructive enemy in your life, you will not use the necessary means to pluck it out or to remove it far from you. You'll rather play with it like a child playing with matches. But eventually, dear ones, you will be burned to such a degree that the scars from that burn will be difficult to remove from your life. The first request, dear ones, here of Agur mirrors that of the Lord and the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us grow, beloved, in our hatred, not only for the sin itself, but also, dear ones, even for the temptation to that sin. The enticements, the solicitations to that sin. Let us hate it all and bring it to Christ to see it plucked out, crucified, and mortified. It needs to be said at this point the removing of sin far from us cannot be accomplished in our own mere strength. For not one of us is stronger than the sin in our lives. And even if one should put away some habit into which he or she has fallen without calling upon the name of the Lord, without depending upon the name of the Lord. His sin or her sin simply morphs or changes forms and manifests itself inwardly or outwardly by boasting in what he or she has accomplished in pride. Dear ones, note that Agur pleads with God to remove his sin far from him. Not put it at a safe distance from me where I can you know, kind of play with it once in a while move it, remove it far from me. For God alone through our Savior Jesus Christ, dear ones, can remove our sins far, far from us. As far as the east is from the west, in fact. According to Psalm 103.12. Only the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the righteous demands of the law which we have broken. And only he died to remove far from us the guilt and the penalty of sin in our lives. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death, has broken for us the mastery that sin had over us. The power that sin once had over us. Romans 6.14 says that sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under a covenant of law. but You're under a covenant of grace. There is no power that comes from a covenant of law to deal with sin. It simply tells you, do this or die. But the covenant of grace 
doesn't remove doesn't remove the standard of God's law. It just says Jesus Christ has fulfilled that. And it says that Christ provides the strength to overcome sin in your life and mine. And dear ones, only the Lord Jesus Christ can bring us to heaven where all our sin and all those temptations, those former temptations to to sin and the spiritual struggles that we have in this life will forever, ever pass away for it will all be made new. No more tears. No more struggles. No more sorrowing and mourning over sin, but all forgiven. Not only actual sin, but also even the principle of sin within us, the corruption removed forever. Unhindered fellowship in purity of mind and speech with the Lord Jesus Christ. Although the Lord grants us faith, there was to lay hold of Christ and his promises and grants us repentance to hate our sin and to endeavor new obedience, remember and never forget, it is God alone who removes sin far from us. We can take no credit. We can take no glory for this in the least. That which is asked by Agur to be removed far away or to be cut off from him are particularly two items to sins, vanity and lies. Vanity means emptiness. For vanity promises to us pleasure, fun, excitement, contentment, being cool or looked up to by our peers, But in the end, dear ones, vanity is empty, it's hollow, it's futile, and it's meaningless. It's like trying to hold air in your hands. There is no substance ultimately to it. Oh, dear ones, the devil is so good at knowing our own personal weaknesses and telling us exactly what we want to hear so as to set a trap of of vanity before us. We may be weak in the area of lust. And vanity lures us away from communion with Jesus Christ and away from the means of grace which the Lord has set in our lives to keep us pure. Those means of grace is word. He will lure us away from the word. He'll lure us away from prayer and being consistent and regular in that means of grace. He'll lure us away from godly parents, a loving spouse or Christian friends, or the Christian ministry, and put us near places where our lust may be satisfied. Whether before a computer, whether in a magazine rack. Whether at various establishments which will promote the lust that we seek. He'll place us in those situations He'll put those occasions of sin before us. And if we are not, dear ones, praying and seeking God to remove vanity far from us, we'll be an easy prey to those particular temptations in our life. Or we may be weak in the area of wanting the praise and the acceptance of others. We may find it so hard for us to stand when everyone around us seems to be taking one position at work. You find such a a particular perspective with regard to the ways of the world and the way that they think. And the pressures come with regard to keeping the Sabbath day or maintaining 
a, a pattern of speech and purity of speech that is consistent with the word of God or maintaining a visible testimony and not participating in lurid jokes, things that are blasphemous and profane the name of God, not actively participating in them, but even by your silence and by the expression on your, your face or by walking away from that, that it's clear you're not joining in with what is being done, even if there's not something explicitly st- stated to that point. But, dear ones, if that is a weakness to you, wanting the praise and acceptance of others, believe me, again, the enemy will set a trap for you in which you will hear praise and receive acceptance from the ungodly who will applaud you in what you do, drawing you ever closer into their ranks. Whatever your besetting sin, whatever it is, Vanity will provide the opportunities and occasions for you to fulfill the lusts of your flesh. Only Jesus Christ can fill, dear ones, the emptiness in your life and mine. For he created us and died to bring life and to bring it more abundantly. It is Christ alone, dear ones, that gives meaning to life. And the sooner that we learn that, And apply that even as children. Applying that truth that only Jesus Christ gives meaning to life. The sooner that we begin to enjoy the life that God has given to us. To its maximum. To its fullest. He is our reason for living. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. According to Philippians 1.21. The devil promises all the time satisfaction and fulfillment, but delivers instead vanity and everlasting death. Christ promises satisfaction and fulfillment and delivers on his promise. He delivers peace and joy and forgiveness and righteousness and everlasting life. And even many times provides so many of the comforts of this life to enjoy. Agur prays that God would also remove far from him lies. Lies. Lies that proceed from within and lies that are presented from without. Lies, dear ones, will only deceive and delude those who tell them, who speak them, and those who receive them. We, dear ones, should hate all lies because God cannot lie. According to Titus 1, verse 2. And to the degree that we are honest and transparent before God, to that same degree, we will be honest and transparent before one another. In fact, we lie and deceive one another because we seek to hide certain things from God when he already knows with his all-piercing eye what is in our heart. He has known it from all eternity. Lies are sins that make it easier to continue in any other sin when we deceive ourselves and lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves, dear ones, that our sin is not so bad. Or we cover our sin. Or that no one else is going to know the sin we've committed. Or that God will forgive our sin anyway. Or that we'll be able to stop that sin anytime we want to. Before it gets out of hand, before it gets too bad. We receive lies, dear ones, when we accept what is false as if it were true. Whatever, beloved, is contrary to God's word is a lie. And we must always remember that Satan is the father of lies. 
lies are such an abomination to our holy God that he even goes as far as to list liars as those who shall have their part in the lake of fire that burns forever. Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 gives to us the promise to those who trust in Christ, who overcome through faith in Christ. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Lies begin in our minds with the same temptation which Satan brought to Eve, hath God really said. You see, there was lies attack the very authority of God, who is truth. It attacks the very authority of God, who cannot lie. And it treats him as if he does not exist, as if truth does not really exist. And therefore, Hagar prayed, or Agar uh, prays that all such falsehood might be cut out of him, removed far from him, and so should we. So should we all. There is another general request that's made by Agur, a request for sufficient means to live upon this earth. When he says in Proverbs 30, verse, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Agur now moves from a plea for sufficient grace, sufficient spiritual grace, to a request for sufficient material means. Note the order of these requests. For that which is most important is grace to trust Christ, grace to repent of sin, grace to love God, and grace to obey Him, whatever the cost. But it is not simple, dear ones, to ask the Lord to meet the physical and material needs we have in this life. We are to pray that the Lord will indeed give us this day our daily bread. But carefully note the parameters laid out in Agur's prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with food convenient for me. Agur prays that the Lord would keep him from one extreme or the other extreme. From poverty or from riches. Now perhaps it is difficult for us to clearly understand what Agur means here by poverty or riches. And so we need to consider, excuse me, to consider what Agur has in mind here. <clears throat> For some may think of poverty as being unable to buy what they desire rather than what they need. For example, our television set goes out and we cannot immediately afford to buy a new one to replace it. That's not poverty because you do not have a television set or because you don't drive the most recent model of car, one that just kind of pokes along and struggles and has all kinds of problems with it. It's not poverty because, you know, your refrigerator may be on the blink. That's not poverty. That's not the poverty that we're here addressing It's not poverty because you or I do not make the amount of money as we would like to make. Poverty, dear ones, is not being able to purchase the necessities of life. It's not 
being unable to purchase the comforts of life. The necessities of life are food and clothing and shelter. Agur prays that God would in his good providence mercifully keep him from falling into such a state of poverty in which he and his family would go hungry. Be without a safe place to lay their heads or suffer for lack of clothing. How ought we to look at the other extreme which Agur prays that God will not give him, namely riches? Here it would seem, in light of what Agur says in Proverbs 20, verse 9, which we'll consider in a moment, that being rich means having the means to acquire essentially whatever you want in this life. Now, there is nothing sinful in itself with poverty or riches. In the parable of Christ, you'll recall Lazarus was a beggar who could not live without the charity of others, and yet, He was a godly and righteous man. Job, on the other hand, was the wealthiest man in the East, and yet he was a godly and righteous man. What is wrong with either of these extremes from Agur's wise vantage point are certain temptations that would likely accompany either poverty or riches. And because Agur wants to be cut off from sin and its temptation, he also prays that God would give him neither poverty nor riches. And we'll look at those temptations in a moment. It is far more likely, dear ones, that we would pray that God not give us poverty, right? Than that we would pray that God give us not give us riches. And why is that the case? Well, because we by nature do not like to be without anything that we want. The simple lusts and desires of our eyes are never satisfied. However, God warns us in Scripture that we make riches and wealth, we make it not our aim, our chief aim in life, to be rich. In Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, we read, By humility, I'm sorry, I was in the wrong chapter, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. When our will, dear ones, is God's will, and when our desires are God's desires, there will be no conflict here. There will be no problem here. Psalm 37.4 Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Make him your chief desire. Make his kingdom your chief desire. Make his cause your chief desire. And then he'll add to you the desires of your heart, because your desires will be in conformity with his desires. When we sincerely and humbly pray, dear ones, not my will, but thine be done, no matter what that may mean in our lives, whether prosperity or poverty, whether good health or chronic illness, whether joy or sorrow, when we pray, not my will, but thine be done, riches will not be a problem to us. They'll not be a stumbling block to us. How much of our day, beloved, is spent in craving more and more of what we do not have in this world? Acre isn't praying to become rich. 
However, if in God's providence God blesses him with riches, he no doubt will seek to use it for God's glory. Acre, dear ones, is praying to have enough for himself and his family. And I submit to you enough to promote the kingdom of God and to help those who have need. Similar to the principles that we find in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 9.14. Where it says, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Should earn their, their sustenance. Should work for their provision through the proclamation of the gospel. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. We read with regard to God's will that we provide for those who are in need that we have a sufficiency ourselves. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Agur is praying that God, dear ones, will provide indeed his daily bread wherein he may meet the needs of his family, the church, and those who are in need. Agur would not, according to his prayer, Agur would not discourage anyone from seeking to find a good or a better paying job or from making a profit off of his money by way of some investment. That's not the point. The chief goal of the righteous, however, should not be to become rich, but to become faithful with whatever God chooses to bless him or her with. Why do you want, dear ones, to prosper financially? Why do you want to prosper financially? Do we, as God's people, need to fall upon our faces and confess before the Lord our covetousness in any of these respects? The goal of the righteous should be contentment in all situations and circumstances, whether in gain or in loss, to find contentment in Christ. Again, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In fact, I would submit, if we were to be asked, dear ones, if we were rich, those of us who are gathered here, if we were to be asked if we were rich, you know, I doubt that any of us would likely view ourselves as being rich and put ourselves into that category of being rich. But I can guarantee you that compared to the vast multitudes throughout the world who are living in abject poverty, we are rich. We have not only our day-to-day needs met, but we enjoy so many of the comforts of this life as well. Try to convince those who go to bed hungry, who have little more than a hut in which to live, who have no shoes upon their feet, that we are not rich, who have fridges they're filled with more than enough food. Who have closets with clothes and shoes in them. Who live in houses that keep us warm and drive cars from one place to another. Try to convince them that we're not rich and they would laugh at such irresponsible representation on our part. They would laugh in unbelief. The third and final main point, the reasons for the request made in prayer. We find in Proverbs 30, verse 9. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. What does Agur, or why does Agur not pray for riches? 
Because he does not want, he does not want to be so self-sufficient that he is tempted to forget God. Fullness, dear ones, so often breeds forgetfulness. Excessive self-sufficiency, sufficiency of all of our needs met, so often breeds complacency. He does not want to fall in love with the riches of this world and make them his God and declare, who's the Lord? That is why Paul gives dear ones, the following warning to those who are blessed with an abundance of riches. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. We all, as I said, to varying degrees may include ourselves Compared to the relative wealth of those or the lack thereof throughout the world, we may all in varying degrees see ourselves as rich. What are we doing with our riches? How are we using the riches that God has given to us? And then finally, dear ones, why does Agur not pray for poverty? Because he does not want to dishonor God. And discredit the profession of faith with the Lord by stealing, even stealing, due to his own hunger. <clears throat> he does not want to bring dear ones, shame. This is, this is the primary reason. He does not want to bring shame upon the name of God, wherein he would be tempted to deny the Lord by stealing. Deny the Lord that God will provide for his needs, even when he lacks. He does not want his life to stink in either the nostrils of the ungodly or in the godly who would scorn the God whom he loves with his whole being. Agur says, in effect, I don't even want to be tempted to forget the Lord my God nor treat the Lord my God with such shame or contempt. Dear ones, is that, is that the motive that moves you to pray for the material blessings that you have in this life? Let me not... Be put, is this your prayer? Let me not be put into a situation whereby my poverty or riches I would bring disgrace upon the God of my salvation. You see, that's the humble plea in prayer of one who wants his Christian life to bring glory, supremely bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what happens in his own circumstances. He does not first and foremost care about his own dreams, his own goals, his own aspirations, but cares chiefly for God's honor, God's name, and God's glory. That, dear ones, that, dear ones, is what should be our chief end in prayer, as well as our chief end in life, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that thy glory, 
thy name, thine honor, has not at all times been before our eyes. We confess, O Lord, to our own shame, to our own embarrassment, O God, that our own glory, our own desires, our own aspirations, our own cause, has it been that which was before our eyes. And so, Lord God, we plead with thee to have mercy upon us and to forgive us. That, Lord, thou would help us to pray with fervency as we call out to thee. Do not treat thee as as if thou wert a mere man. To see thee as the infinite, the almighty, the living God. And to bring, Lord God, requests befitting the omnipotent God. And, O God, we pray that that, uh, those spiritual means of grace might be chiefly uh, in uh, our prayers. Those spiritual and religious affections may be our supreme desire, O God. Thy kingdom might be chiefly what moves us and motivates us. But at the same time, O Lord, may we not fail to come before Thee with our lawful requests and desires recognizing that it is not our righteousness, our goodness, that is the basis for uh, hearing that prayer, those prayers, but rather it is the merit of our Savior. And we pray, our Father, that Thou would guide us, Lord, each and every day to treasure the access we have into thy presence through prayer. That we would not make excuses for not spending that time in prayer with thee. That we would not, O God, see other things as more important than spending time with thee. O Lord, we would not do so. Help us, our God, not to simply do so because it is commanded. That is sufficient, certainly. But, O God, may we do so as well because we delight to do so, because, O God, it is our desire to do so, because of all that Thou hast given to us, not only for the authority that is Thine to command it, but also, O God, for the love and the mercy that has been given us, O God, through the covenant of grace which Jesus Christ, our Savior, has kept and fulfilled for us. Our Lord, we we thank Thee for Thy Word and Thy Spirit. Apply these truths to our lives today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.